0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 47 for the second quarter of August 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today, and next time, is image processing and anomalies. I know that might sound a bit boring, I'll try to make it somewhat interesting, But a lot of pseudoscience out there relies on images, and a fair number of astronomy conspiracies say that NASA or scientists are processing the images, they're not the original ones, and if they would just give us the original images, we'd see insert conspiracy of choice, usually things like Faces on Mars, which will be a different episode. This is also a part one episode, as I mentioned. Part 2 is going to get into more detail about image processing and analysis, and I'll say now that it'll be using the subject that's been of somewhat significant discussion lately as a case in point. So, to get some idea of likely what will be discussed at least in part during Part 2, check out my blog post and my response to Mike Barra's criticism of my video of the Lunar Ziggurat. This episode, though, is going to be divided into a few parts, where first I'm going to talk about the non-basic process of taking and processing a black and white image with a telescope with a modern CCD. Then I'm going to talk about how spacecraft cameras work, and then get into color processing. I'll end the episode with, or at least the main segment, with a few clips, and then explain, based on what I've just talked about, why they're wrong. The finer details of contrast, sharpening, filters, detail, noise, and dynamic range will be discussed in part two. Which is why a video companion is in the works merging these two episodes, and hopefully will be completed by the time the next episode's debut is, or will be, near the end of next week. This is going to be focused on visible light, but the same basic idea works for nearby wavelengths like infrared and ultraviolet, The more extremes, like radio waves, microwaves, gamma rays, and x-rays, are more complicated. But I really haven't seen pseudoscience related to them with astronomy, although I'm sure they are out there. The history of ground-based astrophotography starts with photographic plates over a hundred years ago. Many major observatories that were around then still have these plates archived. Moving forward, though, let's talk about the modern CCD. CCD stands for charge-coupled device. It's an array of light-sensitive parts that are often called pixels, which is short for pixel element. I know that because I was reading a paper from a few decades ago where they felt the need to define what a pixel is. I'm not going to go exactly into how a CCD works, but I'll provide a link or two in the show notes. It's complicated and really not that important for this episode. Each pixel in a black-and-white camera is supposed to be the same, and for visible light, they're generally sensitive to wavelengths somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 to 800 nanometers long, which it is a bit in the ultraviolet and a bit in the infrared. But their sensitivity over those wavelengths varies significantly, and they're almost always more sensitive to the red and less sensitive to the blue end. The better the quality CCD, the more even that sensitivity is. The better the quality of the CCD, the more sensitive it is as well. It may surprise you to know that your consumer camera will only record, generally speaking, anywhere from 5% or so of the light that hits it for a cheapo camera, and up to around 15 to 20% for the professional ones. They're also incredibly sensitive in the infrared, which is why pretty much every single consumer camera has an infrared blocking filter. Otherwise, your images would be bright red as opposed to nice colors of a blue sky or something like that. Everything else, everything beyond that 5 to 20%, is lost. And this is called quantum efficiency, or often abbreviated as QE. The reason that amateur astronomers may spend $5,000, that's U.S. dollars, not some fake currency, on a single professional CCD chip is because they'll record closer to 30 to 40% of the light that hits them. The reason that professional astronomers are going to spend anywhere from 50000 to over $100,000 on a single CCD chip is because they'll record closer to 80 to 90% of the light that hits them. This means that, everything else being equal, if you have to wait two seconds to record something with your camera, a good astronomy CCD we'll record it in closer to one-tenth of a second. When astronomers are taking exposures that last for hours on end, you can start to understand why they shell out the big bucks, for black and white. I'll get into color in maybe 10 to 20 minutes. What I want to focus on, though, in this section is what we do with the pictures that we take. To do that, you first have to start to think about an image not as a pretty picture that's sort of mysterious in how it's made, but as a series of numbers. Each pixel has a numerical value that tells you how much light is there, and so how bright it should or shouldn't be. If we can think of them like that, then everything else is going to make much more sense. In other words, think of a photograph as really a photograph, a graph or display of photons or light. With that in mind, astronomers are very, very picky. If a group of pixels has recorded light from a star in one location on the CCD, and another group of pixels elsewhere on the CCD has recorded light from a different star, then astronomers want to be sure that any difference between the two is real. After all, if they publish a paper saying that star A is half as bright as star B, and then they find out that the reason was that a hair got onto the telescope and blocked part of star B or star A, then they're going to look pretty stupid. To deal with that, we do two things. The first is called we use darks, and the second are called flats. Darks are slowly making their way into sort of mainstream photography and consumer cameras, especially with the prosumer and pro-level Nikon cameras. This is called the noise reduction setting, and the reason that it takes twice as long to take a picture in this setting is that it takes the photo you want and then it takes a photo with the shutter closed. It then subtracts the latter from the former. Again, think of the pixels just as numeric values, and this will make more sense. The purpose of the darks are to determine what the camera sensor records when it's not supposed to record anything at all. There is an inherent level of noise due to the basic laws of thermodynamics and the underlying quantum mechanics that, again, I'm not going to get into. There may also be some unevenness in the sensitivity of the detector, and there may be some hot and some cold pixels. Those are individual pixels that record things much brighter, or much darker, than they should. If you subtract this inherent level of what the CCD is recording when it's supposed to be recording nothing out of the photo that you want to take, then you can get rid of that stuff for the most part. Like, say, if ten photons of light were supposed to hit the pixel, but it recorded 12 photons. But then, when you took the photo with the shutter closed, you got 2 photons in that pixel, then you subtract 2 from 12 and get 10, the real value. That's really the basic idea of darks. Flats are another form of calibration image, and it's done with the shutter open through the exact optics that you're going to use for the real photos. Flats are taken of a purely evenly illuminated surface. For example, the twilight sky. Or, if you've ever been to a professional observatory, you may have noticed a big white circle with lights around it on the dome ceiling. Those are called dome flats, which are the same thing. The purpose here is to take a photo of something that you know what it should look like after it's been dark subtracted. A perfectly evenly illuminated image. If the photo you get back is not perfectly even, then you know that there's a flaw in the optics, like a fingerprint, or a hair, or a speck of dust, or something else that you can't really clean off. To get rid of these, though, we just divide the photo that we want by the flat. Often during a single night of observing, more calibration images are taken than images of the actual object of interest. I'm not really going to get into why we subtract some and divide others, but trust me, the math does work out. The important part here, if you get nothing else out of this discussion, is that astronomers don't just go willy-nilly and take a photo of something and say, this is it. There are several steps, several calibration steps involved to go from the original image to the final one. And all of these processing and calibration steps are in place for the sole purpose of best representing what the scene really looks like and taking into account all of the individual minuscule problems that may be going on with your equipment. In the early days of spacecraft imaging, the camera system onboard was literally a film camera, an onboard darkroom, and then a scanner that read the image and converted it line by line to an analog signal that was then transmitted back to Earth. Now, I fully realize that this was a state-of-the-art, and people back then weren't stupid, but let's be serious here. There's a lot that could go wrong and interfere with getting a quote-unquote true representation of what the object looks like. First, if you're using film, every piece of film is a bit different, and every grain of film is going to be a bit different as well. You can't do darks for film to figure out what the biases will be, although you can do flats for your optics in general. Next, you're developing it on board and then scanning it with an analog sensor. Data can drop out, something mega wonky with the sensor, or something else. And then, you're transmitting it back to Earth pretty much the same way we do today. And so we know that there are sometimes problems with receivers and transmitters. This was a particular issue with the Viking orbiter that returned some of the first mapping images from Mars. Lots of data dropouts. This manifests as small black dots scattered throughout the images in random locations. One happened to make a feature look like a nostril, but that's another episode. Another example is the lunar orbiter imagery. If you ever see photos of the Moon that look like they have some obvious dark parallel bands running through them that are evenly spaced, then you know that it's from Lunar Orbiter, because Lunar Orbiter had scanline problems. In sending the images back to Earth, the data are almost always compressed, meaning that some of it is usually sacrificed in order to make the overall size much, much smaller, so that it can get back to Earth more cheaply and in less time. This was a huge issue with the Galileo mission to Jupiter because Galileo's main antenna failed to actually unfurl properly, and so we had to use a smaller antenna. Similarly, think of it just like your internet. On your internet, it costs more for NASA to have a faster speed, and so if you can download a 360 by 240 pixel video as opposed to one that's HD quality, meaning it's 1920 by 1080 pixels, then it will sap up much, much less bandwidth, and much less hard drive space. Once the images from these spacecraft got back to Earth, then the images or the signals were recorded to magnetic tape, and then these were played back for imaging onto film positives, usually blown up, which meant that you had to combine several of these so-called framelits to get the original image. I was actually just reading a paper from 1970, where the authors go into great detail on how they did this with lunar orbiter images. Again, the whole process here isn't as important as the idea that there's a lot that goes into these, and even a raw image from a spacecraft isn't the same thing as saying an original image as the spacecraft took it, nor is it the same as saying, this is exactly what the scene looks like if I were to go there and look at it with my eye. It's different. There's a lot that goes into these. But that's also not to say that modern systems aren't prone to their own problems. The first type of modern spacecraft camera is the same as a normal astronomical CCD camera that I talked about earlier. It's an array of pixels, usually in a square, that records light. It's read out and then transmitted to Earth. Just like we do with telescopes on Earth, extensive dark frames and flats are taken in order to correct for different sensitivities across the array and for abnormalities in the optics. Say a micrometeorite hits your telescope lens, you're going to want to take care of that in future images. But there are more steps, at least for planetary surfaces. The main one is that after all of those corrections are made, a geometric correction also needs to be made. Let's say, for example, you photograph your kitchen sink. You're standing in front of your sink, and you snap a photo with your camera. The problem is, that photo doesn't really represent the layout of the sink and the kitchen in general. If you were to draw a grid all over your kitchen, including into the sink, and then you took that photo, you'd find that there were grid lines that weren't perfectly parallel and perpendicular. There would be some that were wavy as you go over the topography of your sink, and some might even be missing as you go over the edge. The same goes for photos of planetary surfaces. When we photograph over mountains and craters and the camera isn't looking directly exactly straight down, you get the same issue. We use models of the topography and some complicated mathematics that luckily someone else besides me has figured out in order to correct for those. If you've ever seen non-square modern photos of a planetary surface, and the borders look kind of wavy, and there's an uneven black border, that's why. The image has been geometrically corrected so that it fits exactly right into a perfect latitude and longitude grid, or at least as close as we can get it. The second main type of spacecraft camera is not a square nor a rectangular array, like we've been talking about so far, but it's something called a push broom detector or an array. This is usually just a single line of pixels, and as the spacecraft moves over the surface, the pixels continuously read in data and generate a very, very long image. Some of the cameras in orbit around Mars work this way, and the narrow-angle camera that's on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter works this way as well. This means that to reconstruct the image, you have to figure out where everything was exactly when the data were taken, otherwise you start to smear things. That will make the geometric corrections smear things even more. Again, we've worked all this stuff out, so we pretty much know how to do it right. But the point in mentioning all of this again is to give you an idea of all the work that goes into creating the final image that you see. And we're still talking about black and white. So any time you hear someone claim, but they processed the photo and that's why it doesn't show a face, At the very least by this point you can understand that that statement is a 100% non sequitur. The final part of modern imagery is old imagery. I'm working on a paper where I'm attempting to do some comparison between my crater counts near the Soviet's Luna 24 landing site with some that were published back in 1975. They list the Apollo metric camera photographs that they used in order to do crater counts. I was able to find these online, in digitized format. Obviously, if it's online, it's been digitized. Scanning these old photos in, I think, is of huge importance for both historic and current research purposes. For example, the example I just mentioned. In doing so, though, you're always going to introduce some other problems. For example, despite their best efforts, I'm sure, there are hairs, and lint, and dust, and dirt that are on these scans that I'm using. If I were conspiracy-minded, I'd say that there's a big giant worm on the moon that's two miles long. In reality, I know that you're always going to have these, and I ignore them as a known anomaly that has a mundane explanation. We'll go into some conspiracy with a certain hair in another episode, though. Apollo <coughs> rock. That may be obvious to most of you that you'll get this type of problem especially if any of you have worked to scan in your own family photos and found that no matter how hard you try, you will always have some hair or dust or lint on the photo that you'll put into the scanner. I'm dealing with this now, too, on a project for my parents' upcoming 40th wedding anniversary. A final step in modern image processing is, of course, to release the images to the community and to the public. I'm not familiar with all of the repositories for space telescopes, but at least for spacecraft images. Planetary scientists today access most of the NASA images through a centralized service we call PDS, or Planetary Data Systems. We go in and we get the data, and it's usually in a raw, somewhat compressed, and almost always unprocessed, almost as if it were sent back to Earth, kind of state. From there, we use tools such as ISIS, or integrated software for imagers and spectrometers that's maintained by the USGS, or USG Logic Survey, and we use this to process them as I described above. Or earlier, since this is a podcast and not an actual document. Anyway, ISIS has scripts that convert the image to the ISIS standard format that then dark subtract and flat field and map project and do all this other fancy stuff based on calibration files that are supplied by the imaging team. Then... It outputs to your normal standard image format of choice. And to all of you astrophysicists out there, it's much easier to use than IRAF, so ha. For you non-astrophysicists, IRAF is the image reduction and analysis facility, which is what you generally use for processing astrophysical images from telescopes. And it is a huge pain in the arse to use. Flipper! Flipper! Okay. Enough of the inside jokes, and to those of you who don't know, do a web search for IRAF and FLPR, which is pronounced as Flipper. Anyway, that's how most professional planetary scientists who know what they're doing get access to the raw data. I do this all the time. In fact, I'm running some ISIS processing scripts right now as I write and record this episode to process some images from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. Another way the professionals access data is by what we call derived data products, and this is stuff like a mosaic of the moon that was generated by thousands of images and put together by the imaging team themselves. These are often made to try to be as geometrically correct and not necessarily to look pretty. They're for research purposes not to hang on someone's wall. For example, if you look at the lunar mosaic put out by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter Camera Team, or LROC team, It's made up of thousands of images that are probably pixel accurate to within maybe 10 pixels or so. But there are banding issues, and shadows don't always match up. And by the way, 10 pixels off is over a kilometer. The Themis Mosaic, the one of Mars that came out prior to the last one in 2010, had problems with it, where there was some ghosting that was present due to some poorly aligned images, meaning that some features appeared doubled, offset by a few kilometers as opposed to just maybe one kilometer. If I were conspiracy-minded, I'm sure I could think of something that they were trying to hide. But to a planetary scientist, we care about where these features are. Not really if shadows on a hill are consistent between two images that made that hill up. But that's a kind of anomaly, or another kind of anomaly, that some are going to always point to and say that they're trying to hide something. And that brings us to releasing images to the public. This is often very, very different from releasing images for scientists. The public, as I've discussed numerous times with the Apollo moon hoax episodes, generally likes to see pretty pictures without all of the image anomalies and imperfections and shadows not quite lining up that professionals really couldn't care less about. To do this, to make the images for press, we will often sacrifice some of the exactness for prettiness. I'm willing to go into an image and use the clone stamp or paintbrush on a piece of hair or shadow to get it to look better for press. I did that recently to remove a seam where two images were slightly mosaic together wrong. And finally, the images actually are released to the press, and on someone's website. And just as with anything else, they're usually saved as a lossy file format like JPEG. Often, with a high compression, meaning that a significant amount of information is lost. This introduces artifacts when software, like a web browser, tries to reconstruct the original image from the compressed version to display to you, the viewer. JPEG artifacts are the most common, and these appear as large blocks, several pixels in size, with seemingly odd splotches of color or varying brightness. Most people would dismiss these as normal image compression artifacts, but anomaly hunters do not, and I'll specifically address this in a bit with an example from none other than Richard C. Hoagland. One of the final steps to this already very long and still only part one episode is how we get color. Your consumer camera, the camera on your cell phone or watch or pin or button or actual monotasker camera, is a color sensor. Each group of four pixels is made up of three colors, a red pixel in the top left, a green in the top right, a second green in the bottom left, and a blue pixel in the bottom right. This is called a Bayer pattern, B-A-Y-E-R. When your camera takes a photo, it then automatically interpolates all of those alternating reds, greens, and blues together in order to give you what it thinks the red was at every pixel, what it thinks the green was at every pixel, and what it thinks the blue was at every pixel. Usually it does a reasonably good job because things aren't discontinuous at the pixel level, for most applications. For example, your great-aunt Steph's cousin's mother's former college roommate's maid of Honor's wedding dress is going to generally be that ugly robin egg blue all over, and so your camera can approximate it well without knowing the exact values at every pixel but astronomers need to do better. We're taking photos of stars, or asteroids, or objects in general, where the information that we want may be made up of only one pixel across, or actually even less than one pixel, but it just gets recorded in one pixel. If we want color, then we use a black and white detector, so we have the same kind of pixel at every pixel, and we use filters. So I might take a CCD and use five different filters in order to get what I want. I might use a broad blue, a broad green, and a broad red filter. And then I might use a very, very, very narrow filter designed just to record the transition of oxygen in green light. And another one designed just to record a sodium transition in yellow light. And, going back to the beginning, because I'm changing the optics by using different filters, I would need to do flats for each and every one. With spacecraft that do color around planets, the colors are generally infrared, red, green, and blue. Some have more, some have less, and some have different ones. For example, the high-rise camera on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter takes photos at around 25 centimeters per pixel, and it has a red filter that's actually red through near-infrared, a near-infrared filter that just cuts out everything visible and bluer, and a green-blue filter that cuts out everything yellow and longer. Meanwhile, the wide-angle camera on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter takes photos in seven different colors, two of them being ultraviolet. How you actually combine these all can lead to a whole host of problems with conspiracists. When we do combine them, astronomers are most interested in getting useful information out of it. If we take a photo of a galaxy with two filters, say, a blue one and a very narrow green one for oxygen, when I combine the two to look at it visually, I might assign the blue filter to a blue color and the green filter to a red color. That way, when I see a bright red spot standing out from the blue, I know that I'm looking at a planetary nebula because that's what that filter is used for. If I'm looking at a color image of Asteroid 4 Vesta taken by the Dawn spacecraft, then the Dawn team has keyed the colors for that particular image to make the different mineral types that they're interested in stand out. The same goes for color with Messenger at Mercury. The same goes for photos of Mars, and really for everything else. It is only when we release these photos to the public that, if there is, Anywhere in any way close to what the human eye would actually see, do we try to tee the colors more to what the human eye would see? Hubble does this a lot. The wide angle camera on the lunar reconnaissance orbiter tries to do this as well, at least sometimes. High rise very rarely tries to do this. The Mars rover team has really tried to do this a lot with spirit and opportunity. The new rover, Curiosity, actually has a Bayer pattern filter built in to its camera, just like your camera. After calibration with known objects, like a flag or color guide on the craft itself, we'll get true color images of Mars, though there are people out there who say the red is fake, like Mike Barra. The Curiosity rover also has a few other filters that it can use, including some narrow filters that lets it just look at a single color of light, a near-infrared filter, and a solar filter. For astronomers taking photos of moving objects in the sky, colors get more complicated. Say, for example, you're the Cassini spacecraft around Saturn and you try to take a color photo of Saturn. You put your red filter in, take the image, put your green filter in, take the image, blue filter, take the image. During that time, Saturn hasn't moved in your field of view, but a moon has. How do you combine the colors correctly for Saturn and for the moon. You can't unless you go into something like Photoshop. This very thing happened in late 2010. A UFO guy accused the Cassini team, or actually Emily Loctwalla, of hiding a UFO because of a released image of two of Saturn's moons with a seemingly simple crescent of shadow for both. But if you took the press image released into Photoshop and boosted the brightness, you saw an area of the moon that was in shadow where someone had taken a brush in Photoshop or some other image program and painted it pure black. Thus, they were accused of hiding cities on the night side of the moon, or something like that. When what really happened was that in the time that Cassini took to take the red, green, and blue images, the moons moved relative to each other, and so to get them to look right, you have to take them into an image processing program to get rid of the color ghosting. Nothing sinister, nothing anyone wouldn't really do if they're doing the images for science, but something that you would do before putting out a press release, or making a pretty picture for a blog article or news story. Now, before moving on to the two simple conspiracy claims, I want to recap the important points that I've talked about after the last half hour. First, astronomers try to take into account everything going on with their detectors and optics and viewing geometry. This means that every photo is processed, and that any claim that a photo has been processed, and if we just saw the raw, unprocessed version, then my anomaly of choice would show up, is false. An unprocessed photo looks like crap, or at least usually. Second, every processing step can result in new anomalies popping up. There are many steps when something weird can happen, and these days, where we have literally tens of terabytes of data, that's millions of images, everything is automated. You don't have someone checking every image in detail to make sure that it's done properly. Third, Older generation images are especially prone to anomalies that most people would dismiss as exactly what they are. Things like data dropouts, image noise, dust, scratches, lint, etc. Fourth, every photo that you see that's color is a reconstruction from either color filters or specific color-sensitive pixels. We can try to approximate it to what the human eye saw by loads of calibration steps, but everything, to some extent, is false color. That said, photos that are said to be close to what the human eye would see really actually are close to what the human eye would see. Mars really is red, Mike. Fifth, when we release images through press releases, we don't care quite as much about the scientific integrity. I know that sounds bad, but bear with me. If there were a giant hair in a scan of an image I used for science, before that went into my press release, I would go into Photoshop and use the content-aware editing tool and remove the hair. The result might show a faint outline of something, or it might have weird noise properties that then someone searching for a conspiracy would go in and find. That doesn't mean I'm trying to hide a UFO nor a glass tube on Mars it means that I don't want a hair in an image plastered across the front of the New York Times for my grandmother to see. Not that any of my stuff has ever been in the New York Times, but a budding young scientist can dream. Similarly, when I released that image, I'm going to release it in a format that news organizations want to deal with, namely a relatively small, compressed JPEG. If you blow up that JPEG, anomalies will be found which really brings us to the two examples of claims related to what I've just talked about. The first has to do with NASA's LCROSS mission, when it impacted the lunar south pole to try to throw up a plume of material to determine if any water molecules were present back in 2009. or 2009. Richard Hoagland, of course, made a rather large dramatic lead-up to the event, When he claimed that the real space program, NASA, found out about the secret space program cities at the lunar south pole, and we were mad at them, and so this was literally us nuking them, with the whole water thing being just a cover. Even after it was over, and there was no visible explosion—Hogland actually predicted a giant explosion bigger than NASA was predicting— Richard still managed to find some apparent evidence of his claims in these small NASA images that were released for public consumption as small JPEGs.
1: And what we found from that data was, was that as you go further toward the north or south pole, the ruins which are destroyed near the equator are less and less destroyed as you get near the top and the bottom of the moon. That's where LaCrosse hit in one of those craters, one of those areas where there are ruins near the South Pole. And if you look at the photographs, those last minute visible images, as the spacecraft was getting closer and closer and closer before it impacted and the and the images cut off, you will see organized geometry. It's really in bad shape. It's really in ruins. It's been scoured and abraded by meteorites, you know, till the cows come home. But it's still there in gross form an organization, a geometry, that is not random impact. It is structure that's been degraded by abrasion by micrometeorites.
0: There's that, or we can quote from his website, and I'm going to do my best impression of how he speaks. The newly released NASA frames, above, looked way overexposed, yes. But also, after being properly reversed, they contained regions that were definitely intensely geometric and when brightened just enough in the computer to allow one to see down into the shadows clearly there was definitely something there george like the outlines of some kind of mega scale geometric engineering dimly lit deep under an underexposed lunar surface layer maybe not the best impression you've ever heard but It's already 35 minutes into the episode. What is clear is that this is a case of JPEG compression, and then brightening up of the perfectly black shadowed region to bring out the JPEG compression artifacts. I encourage you to go to the show notes for the episode, and to look at the images, or at least go to the Enterprise mission links to the images, because I don't want to actually be accused of copyright infringement, and see what Richard has done in order to show these apparent anomalies. He either doesn't know about JPEG artifacts, or he chose to hope that his audience doesn't. I'm going to lean more towards the latter, but I don't know for sure. To quote from reporter Dwayne Day, though, there's an old saying that when you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras, and certainly not unicorns or centaurs. Hogan sees dust specks and thinks ancient giant extraterrestrial ruins. End quote. Or, in this case, he sees JPEG artifacts and thinks secret space program giant lunar infrastructure. Now, since I've already talked about the basic claim of false color on other planets, I'm going to go into a short case study of a claim that deals not specifically with anything that I've talked about in this episode, Andy Basiago and Mars Anomalies. Now, I've written a few blog posts about this over the past few years, so if any of you are very long-time readers as in, you've been reading my blog since about 2009, then you may recognize the name of Andy Basiago. Most recently, he's the guy who claimed that he went to Mars along with a young Barry Satoro a few decades ago, and young Barry turned to him, you know, just because he wanted to, and told him that he would be president one day. No, I'm not going to address that stuff in this episode, but before the whole Chronovisor and Project Pegasus stuff that Basiago has come up with, he made headlines in late 2008 as a lawyer who claimed that National Geographic wouldn't publish his groundbreaking analysis of one of the photos of the Mars exploration rover Spirit, where Basiago claimed to find numerous living animals, including the famous Bigfoot at Mars. Now besides the obvious pareidolia, which is seeing familiar patterns and randomness, What this is also pointing out is another aspect of image processing that many pseudoscientists tend to do. They blow the image up in size and then read into the pixelated noise. This is something that anyone familiar with any Star Trek series or CSI knows. Picard or Kirk or one of the other two captains who killed the franchise and so shall remain nameless, tell their con officer to put something on the view screen and then magnify, magnify, magnify. The image is crystal clear at each magnification level. With real images that we take, 100% is really 100%. There is no extra hidden data that can be gathered between the pixels. And I am aware that Richard Hoagland, Mike Barra, and others think otherwise. I'll discuss this in more detail in the companion video and probably next episode. But if you insist, image software will be happy to try to comply with your request and make the image bigger. It does this by various different interpolation schemes, but this always means that it's going to be making up the missing data based on the real data. It's like it takes two points and tries to fit some sort of line, or fit to it based on those two points and other ones around it. It guesses. It is not adding new information to what was already there. Inevitably, when you do this, you will get an image that looks blocky because, even though the interpolation tried to smooth things out, you are still fundamentally blowing up individual pixels. So not only are you making up intermediate information between the pixels, but you're also increasing all that noise that we just talked about earlier, all of those potential tiny defects that couldn't exactly be accounted for. That one single hot pixel that didn't get dark subtracted out is now a giant glowing eyeball in the newly blown up image. That data dropout becomes a nostril in a giant face. That scan line becomes an underground subway tunnel that collapsed. That's what Basiago did in this case, and it's what a lot of people still tend to do. In fact, Mike Barra just today did as in recording this. That's not to say that you can't always blow up an image a bit. If your cropped photo of your daughter's horseback competition is only suitable for a 4x6 inch print, then you can increase the size a bit and get a 6x9 inch print out of it. No one is really going to notice. But when you blow up an image 4,000% and then say that you've found staircases on Mercury because you're really just looking at individual pixels, that's a problem. I'm going to end this episode's very long, much longer than expected, main segment with an eye towards part two, leaving you with some advice on some ways to spot a potential fake or a forced anomaly. First, does it actually pass the so-called smell test? As in, does it look fake? The recent quote-unquote discussions that I've had regarding the Lunar Ziggurat, for example, looks fake at first glance. It does not even pass this most basic of qualitative glances. But beyond that, there are a few other questions to ask. Such as, does the image have a scale bar? If not, and they're claiming that it's a 50-mile-wide feature, you have no way of knowing if that's true or not. This was the case with the Bigfoot on Mars. The feature was actually on the order of a centimeter or two tall. Another is whether or not they tell you what the original image is, and what the original source of that image is. Again, with this whole lunar ziggurat thing... The original image was not described, but fortunately, it was in the file name. But we were also not told where on the original image the anomaly was. We eventually found it, though. We also were not told where the version with the ziggurat came from, and Mike Barra has now come out and stated that he got it from a guy on the Call of Duty Zombies forum. Not exactly the most credible of locations. That should set off some red flags to any normal person but he believes that the one with the ziggurat from the guy on the call of zombies or call of duty zombies forum is 100% real and that the nasa one is fake more flags if any of the other stuff i mentioned throughout the episode crops up claims of color fakery any claims of geometric features or patterns that are very often attributable to pixelation and or compression artifacts also check for lint or elsewhere in the image for things like data dropouts If there's a dark spot on your spacecraft image that just makes that feature work but there are other dark spots all throughout the image at random places, chances are it's a data dropout, or it didn't get dark subtracted properly. Or it's just, as I said with a dark subtraction, a hot or cold pixel. In the end, every claim of an anomaly that I've seen has always had a more mundane explanation. But we'll keep looking. There's no formal new news this week, or this episode, but I would like to bring up something from my own research that bears in on the Apollo moon hoax idea. Over the past month or so, I've been buried in reading old papers from the 1960s and 70s entirely based on the Apollo missions. This includes downloading and reading, in some cases, spending hours digitizing old data off of graphs presented in the roughly roughly 2,557 pages of the Apollo preliminary science reports put out by NASA. While reading these and recording some of this archival data for a project I'm working on, in the back of my mind was the idea that there are still people out there who think that Apollo did not land and returned people to and from the moon. These conspiracists look at photos and talk about radiation, but they've never actually looked at the science that was gained from the Apollo missions. I'd like to see them try to claim that these literally tens of thousands of pages written deriving science from the Apollo missions is somehow all faked or based off of engineered rock samples. The audacity of these people sometimes truly does boggle the mind. And related to that, of course, my congratulations to the amazing teams that designed, constructed, and managed the Mars Science Laboratory, a.k.a. Curiosity, and its successful landing on Mars on Saturday, August 5th, my time zone. Expect great things to come from it, and even greater pseudoscience from Richard Hoagland and the rest. For this episode's q and I really wasn't going to do another creator question, but this one was timely. Before I read it, a teensy bit of background. Richard C. Hoagland was on Coast to Coast AM all night on August 5th, with a few different people he didn't let talk, discussing the landing of the Mars Science Laboratory. That occurred during the first hour of that Coast to Coast episode, or show. Richard, among other things, said that the central mound of Gale Crater, which is the Mars Science Laboratory landing site, is a collapsed ancient arcology. He explained why he believes that, in part, because a crater forms when you blast out a huge hole in the surface, so how do you get a mountain? Where did all that material come from? The answer is that you get a rebound effect once craters get to a certain size. On Mars, it's about 6 kilometers across, as I showed in my dissertation work. Below that, you don't get a central peak. Above that, you generally do. Though, it should be emphasized that in the case of Gale Crater and Mount Sharp, which is the new name, the central mound is much more extensive than a normal crater central peak, and it's thought to be a bleep load of sediment deposited by water. So, on the SGU forums, Belgarath stated, "...you indicated that all Martian craters above a certain size leave a mountain in the middle. Is that true for the Moon, too? Does the body have to be a certain size range for craters to form that way? Is the mountain basically happening because the surface liquefies and plops back up like what happens when a rock hits water?" The answer is yes. That's pretty much exactly what happens at a very basic, very basic level. The impact liquefies the surface, and at these temperatures and under these pressures, the rock will act like a fluid. That rebound effect you get when you throw a rock into a pond is what is thought to form the central peaks of craters. If you dropped a small enough rock into a pond, like, say, a grain of sand, or, say, you changed the viscosity of the pond, like if you were to drop a rock into honey then what you would get is not a rebound effect, you'd just make a temporary hole in the pond's surface, or the bowl of honey's surface. That's the case for smaller craters. But when you get bigger, then you get the rebound effect and central peaks. If you get really, really big, then you get the central peak spreading out into a ring, and you get what we call a peak ring crater. Mars has around a dozen of these that still have their peaked ring. The Moon, because it has much less active erosion, has many, many more. But the diameter transition of where you get these central peaks and central rings varies by target type and by location in the solar system. On Earth, the transition is at around 3 kilometers. On Mars, it's around 6. On the Moon, it's around 15. What controls the transition was originally, fundamentally thought to be based on surface gravity. Since Earth has more surface gravity than Mars, the transition is at a much smaller diameter. And, since Mars has much more gravity than the Moon, it's a much smaller diameter than the Moon's. But target material also plays a role, as I proved in my doctoral dissertation. And impact velocity is also thought to play a role. Since the average velocity of impactors at Mars is something like 12 to 15 kilometers per second, whereas the average impact velocity at Mercury is closer to 30 to 40 kilometers per second, then there will be a difference between those as well. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available. Although the easiest really is just to send an email to podcast at sgrdesign.net. Skipping the feedback this time, it's time for the puzzler We each episode where I can think of one, I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment, and discuss a solution from the last one. Since there was no puzzler from last episode, then this episode's puzzler is more of an exploratory one, and one that I may have answered in part in the main segment. Let's say that you've run across a website that claims to have found fossilized life on Mars and photos from the Mars rovers. Incidentally, Sir Charles Schultz III claims this, and there will be future episodes about him. What steps would you take in order to look into the claims? Now, as I said, this is a bit open-ended and exploratory, but it's something that you should think about if you're interested in pseudoscience related to planetary astronomy. A lot of it is made when these claimed anomalies are found, and so you should have some idea of how one should investigate the claims. So think about it. Don't necessarily use the few that I gave you, and send in your response to puzzler at sjrdesign.net, and I'll discuss some of what I think are the most useful or the best methods in the next episode. And that episode, as I have said, will be about image processing and anomalies, part 2. So, if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on it, please send it in. Also, if there's anything specific that you'd like to see addressed in the Part 2 version of Image Processing and Anomalies, please let me know. I have a lot of stuff that I'd like to cover, but I'm of course open to adding some stuff that you may have always wondered about. And if you don't get your request in before I release Episode 48, don't worry, send it in anyway if it's not addressed there, and I'll discuss it in Q&A in future episodes, or include it in, perhaps, a part three. No other real announcements this week, but for those of you who don't listen to the very end once the music starts, I'll mention that if you do like this podcast, please feel free, and do, share it with some people. I'm assuming that most of you have some sort of internet presence in some way, shape, or form on forums or social networking sites. So, why don't you mention it to a few people that you've never met in person, so can't punch you if they don't like it. That wraps up this topic for the 47th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use 1. The feedback form on the website. 2. Send an email to podcast.sjrdesign.net. 3. Leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. 4. Leave a comment on the blog post for this episode. 5. Leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. or 6. Send an email or tweet to me at pseudoastro. I read every email, and I do appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. And I already gave the sharing spiel from before, so that's it.